and welcome to Rising. We have a perfectly adequate show for you all today. I'm channeling Ryan Grimm, who used to always kick things off with one of those lovely superlatives. What a stinker. <laughs> well, Robbie, up first, we have former President Trump teasing his pick for vice president during a Fox News appearance yesterday. Let's take a look at that. You have to have somebody that's going to be a great president. A lot of people are talking about that gentleman right over there. And he's been, he's been so great. He's been such a great advocate. I, I have to say, I don't, this is in a very positive way, Tim Scott. He has been much better for me than he was for himself. I watched his campaign, <laughs> and he doesn't like talking about himself, but boy, does he talk about Trump. And I said, you know, I called him. I said, Tim, you're better for me than you were for yourself. But he's fantastic, and he's a fantastic person. Uh, so no, someone I who want can somebody step in. that can Someone be. who can step into the role. Most importantly, you have to view that. Now, new Quinnipiac polling yesterday finds Trump trailing four points behind President Biden in a general election matchup. Trump, nonetheless, has made considerable gains among younger voters, including the 18 to 34-year-old age group, a whopping 45 percent who now support the Don, according to Quinnipiac. Meanwhile, in Michigan, progressives are looking to make Joe Biden a one-term president over his support of Israel's war in Gaza. According to The Washington Post, Arab American groups are launching a campaign to convince Democratic voters in Michigan to withhold their vote for Biden until the war stops. President Biden was asked about rumors that the Democratic Party is courting Gavin Newsom as a potential 2024 backup while departing for a trip to California yesterday. Here's what he had to say about that. Are you ready? Yes, sir. Well, I'm looking for, I'm looking at you. We're looking at you. Hey, whoa, 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 whoa. What I came to tell you was, I told you we'd be announcing sanctions on Russia. So, first of all, we should uh, correct something a little bit. It's not, I, I understand the New York Times and corporate media are very eager to frame the abandoned Biden or withholding from Biden movements as trying to make him lose to Trump, because that's literally the only argument that they have. Nothing affirmative, really, in terms of why people should vote for Joe Biden. But the reality is, even those efforts are pretty meager insofar as they're only targeted toward the primary. They're only trying to demonstrate to Biden that now he has an opportunity to demonstrate to voters who do vote, who did knock doors for him, who did support him back in 2020, that they can and will do so again, but only if he stops doing what has been described by the ICJ as a plausible genocide in Israel, in Gaza. And it honestly shouldn't be that big of ask. But now we're seeing the foaming at the mouth, uh, uh, incensed liberal media framing this as, oh my gosh, you, you want to vote for Trump again, even though these are the very same people that worked so hard for his campaign last time around, simply because there are some folks in that community in particular who have lost 80 members of their family because of American bombs that Joe Biden not only sent over there, but rushed over there to embrace right-wing leader Netanyahu before he dropped them. And so they're simply saying, do you have an obligation to recognize the American citizens that you want to vote for you are being hurt viscerally by your behaviors overseas? And can you please just say a ceasefire after four months of relentless bombing that has killed 30,000 Palestinians? Can you just entertain a ceasefire in exchange for my vote? And you see how the so-called left media in the United States of America responds to even that. Yeah. I mean, Biden continues to... Um object supposedly to what Netanyahu's doing, but not exercise any power, not 
threaten funding, to withhold it, not to, even though I think at the same time, I think the UK is considering now, I read some reporting about um, withdrawing support if, uh, if, if Israel continues along the same path, they're going down, but not Certainly the not the United States, who just this week vetoed again another ceasefire resolution before the UN. Um, and of course, Democrats are very single focused on getting this foreign aid package passed, which again is three times or so more than the already $3.8 billion we send Israel every year, more country than any other place, uh, more money than any other country in the world. Yeah, I think we're going to turn a uh, return to Israel as a subject a little bit later in the show. Um, what did you make of Trump there? Uh, calling out Tim Scott from the stands. Um, I said for a while that I think Tim Scott is probably the most likely VP pick at this point. Um, Trump, I think, giving a lot of support to that rumor by saying that Tim Scott is a more effective surrogate campaigner on behalf of Trump than he was for himself, which mm -hmm. Tim Scott kind of politely smiled about and laughed at. Um, it seems like Donald Trump really does have some affection for the guy and uh, thinks that he's a good, effective campaigner and hype man for Trump, which is really what Trump is looking for in a VP. Um, he's also um, spoken favorably about um, Tulsi Gabbard recently, um, about Christy Nome. Um, Ron DeSantis, uh, it, so in that interview with Laura Ingram, she, she mentioned a bunch of names. Mm -hmm. Ron DeSantis, Christy Nome, uh, Tim Scott, um, there might have been one or other two names, I think, in the mix, and uh, and Trump affirmed that they were all on his list. Even DeSantis, who you know, until recently they had a very combative relationship, um, but it, you know, it goes to show. And honestly, again, this could still be the path for Nikki Haley if she were to not be in the race anymore. Once it's over, once you fall in line and get behind Trump. Um, it doesn't seem like there's much love lost. And that was true of a lot of the people who ran against him in 2016. Ted Cruz, Rand Paul, so many of the, however many people there were, um, have become, you know, perfectly on good terms with Trump and defend him on, on, in cable news and in other appearances, et cetera. No love lost. Well, as implausible as it seems that Ron DeSantis would stand alongside uh, Donald Trump as his VP after the meatball run of it all, and that's just the tip of the iceberg. It does seem from his recent comments that he might perceive himself as still being in the running. He recently, I think just this past Wednesday, uh, kind of went out of his way to decline to give any support for any of the other names that have been floating around and went so far as to say, to criticize, tacitly criticize uh, the Trump camp for, quote, leaning more on identity politics. He said, I think that's a mistake. So all the names that you mentioned were either women, people of color, or both. Um, Ron DeSantis seems to be saying identity politics are bad, whether or not he mm -hmm. believes that or whether or not he just thinks that he wants to make the case for himself as a white male. It, it's up to the viewers it's to like, decide. Uh, it's like Google Gemini gen generated the shortlist. <laughs> we asked it for VP <laughs> candidates, and look what it spit out. We'll be talking about that a little bit later in the show as well. Um, what about the Gavin Newsom of it all, coming in to save Democrats from themselves? But of course, you know, from your perspective, I doubt that Gavin Newsom would have a, I mean, I don't really know, but would have a Israel policy or a foreign policy that is substantially different from Biden seems unlikely to me. No, but the Israel, look, there are people, there are, it, there are people who, Democrats are broadly uh, suffering on that front, politically, as they deserve to be, in my humble opinion. But that's, that's hardly Biden's only issue. Biden is really suffering from the fact that, what, 70, 80 percent of Democrats think he's too old to run. Yeah. And once you start going the rabbit, down the rabbit hole on one of these issues that you're concerned about, it, it opens the floodgates to all the rest. And I do think that's what's happening with Biden right now. Like, the, the dams have fallen, and, and any and all criticism are rushing uh, uh, over, over the over the wall, Gavin Newsom 
unlike Biden, is energetic, is spirited, is youthful, is a good debater. You know, he doesn't have any of the, the failings that has caused Ezra Klein to argue that while uh, Joe Biden might be a good president, he does not have the capacity to run for president. And that's the issue with the replacement right now. Now, there's a great clip on The View that I really wish I could show you guys from yesterday where they debated this exact issue. And most of the panel was really having a meltdown on Sonny Hostin's suggestion that they could replace Biden and perhaps should replace Biden. Uh, apart from mm. Sonny in... Um, Obviously, uh, Alyssa, who is the conservative on the panel, everyone else seemed to think it was some kind of like personal, they, they seemed to treat it as it was some personal moral attack on Biden to point out the obvious that many voters are concerned about his cognitive That's and so physical it's not a, It's not a monarchy. It's not a medieval kingdom where you don't get the next leader until yeah. the person in charge literally dies in office. That's not, it's yeah. a democracy. And the yeah. most effective candidate, and again, if you think that, you say, okay, well, it's really the advisors and those people who set policy. He doesn't really even need to be all there. Okay, but he needs to be, he's the communicator yeah. in chief. His job is to project and, and portray and explain the policies of the administration. And he's just stunningly incapable of doing that, it seems. Nate Silver challenged him to do like five tough interviews in the next month, you know, grueling, long interviews with maybe with a friendly news organization and then also with a Fox or something to show. And, and if he does OK and, you know, disproves the uh, the idea that he's not all there having a bad job communicating, yeah. then stick with it. It's not going to happen. Of course, we know it's not he happen. wouldn't succeed at that and he won't agree to do it. Because we need more proof. We already know that what Obama had done 400 odd interviews at this point in the cycle. Biden's done like 80. Trump had done 300 odd interviews. We know why he doesn't do long interviews. It's because yeah. he doesn't do well in short interviews. And the, one of the points I wanted to mention about the View discussion was that uh, Anna Navarro in particular kept bringing up the, the rationale that because of Kamala Harris, because you can't leapfrog over Kamala Harris, this is something that cannot be put into effect. And that black women in particular were never going to stand for this. Now, notably, there was uh, there are two black women on the panel, and one of them was the one that was making the case for replacing Joe Biden, Sonny Hostin. So it, it, it really strikes me. I've heard a lot of people make this argument. I've even, I think, heard you made it, make a version of this argument, Robbie. I've never heard a black person make this argument. Like, I got to say, I hear a lot of liberals who are holding black people in front of them like human shields, like they do yeah. every election cycle to justify their no, own no, political I don't think position. Actually, I don't, you're not doing that, obviously. But this is, this is I think, what's hoping, what people are hoping for. People are doing wishful thinking. Yeah. Uh, people who want to protect Joe Biden, the Simone Sanders and the likes of the world, are That's saying what I mean. black people will be upset. Black people didn't vote for Kamala Harris when it, she was running not. for president. Black people uh, have no organic right. support for uh, Kamala Harris. There's a news story that Charlamagne the God, maybe we'll get this a little later, Charlamagne the God got pushed back from the White House for being critical on his black radio show of Joe Biden. And if you look around, black people are growing in terms of their support of Donald Trump historically. Right. So what I, they're doing is trying to create a world where people, white liberals, I think, are afraid to say that you can't replace uh, Joe Biden because of black women, but it's not reality on the right. ground. I don't think actual black women voters, as a which are not a monolith anyway, I, I, I agree with you. I don't think that sentiment is out there. I think 
when they think of black women voters, they're thinking about Simone Sanders. Yeah, they're Wayne thinking Reed, about elites on MSNBC. Right, but that's their only perspective on that, and those people have them so convinced that they would lose black women yeah. as a group if they do that. So that's why they're going to be afraid to do it. Not because it's yeah. genuine, but because the people whose cues they listen to are insisting on that from like a, in a propagandistic way that it's the truth. Because those are the people that leveraged the black vote in 2020 and said, we'll forget the millions of people in the street who are horrified by the tragic murder of George Floyd on camera, will forget any other demand we've ever made in the history of mankind, will forget economic precarity, will forget all of the free trades, will forget everything if you just give us a VP. That's what black people really want. And they went to the White House and made that false claim on behalf of the American people, got themselves plumb positions in the administration and on cable networks, and are now hoping to play that same three-card Monty again with the black vote. But... I think they've pushed things too far. And as you see from the poll numbers and how many more black people are saying we're going to either stay home or vote for Donald Trump or who are up in arms and, and disaffected over what's going on in Palestine, we're just not doing it again. I think they've run out their welcome. and It should be a very interesting election season. More rising right after this. All right, Robbie, what's on your radar today? So earlier this week, former White House press secretary turned cable news host Jen Psaki interviewed Nancy Pelosi, the former Speaker of the House, on her MSNBC show. Now, given the recent death of Russian dissident and opposition leader Alexei Navalny, likely on the orders of President Vladimir Putin, the conversation quickly turned to foreign policy. Saki referenced Donald Trump's comments on the matter, noting that the former president had likened Navalny's political persecution and probable murder to his own treatment by Democratic uh, prosecutors in his various trials. Trump also declined to specifically criticize or blame Putin for Navalny's death, instead releasing a frankly bizarre statement about the quote open borders, rigged elections, and grossly unfair courtroom decisions that are destroying America. That emphasis Trump's. When asked what she made of these comments, Pelosi openly speculated that Trump was not merely soft on Putin, but compromised vis-a-vis -vis some financial arrangement, blackmail, or otherwise. Quote, you wonder what does Putin have on Donald Trump, asked Pelosi. A few minutes later, Pelosi again suggested that Putin had dirt on Trump, and this was the reason for Trump's relatively cordial relationship with the Russian dictators. Then she criticized Trump's views on NATO, referring to Trump as what's-his-name and then nameless. Saki chimed in with he who must not be named, so that's an unintentional Lord of the Rings reference and an intentional Harry Potter reference if you're keeping count as I am. Now, when Saki asked Pelosi explicitly, what do you think Putin has on him, the former House Speaker responded that she thought it was, quote, probably financial. Now, is it fair to criticize Trump for failing to forthrightly condemn the apparent assassination of Putin's chief rival? Of course, but it's easy to do so without falling prey to what is at this point a conspiracy theory. For the course of the many years that journalists, political operatives, special investigators doggedly pursued this matter, they turned up no evidence whatsoever that there are hidden motivations explaining Trump's seeming affection for Putin. Yet Democratic pundits and congressional leaders continue to portray a rhetorical and political disagreement, they're more anti-Russia, Trump is less anti-Russia, as evidence that Trump is a Manchurian candidate. These claims go all the way back to the 2016 election in which Trump's surprise victory was attributed to Russian influence. 
Now, years later, the idea that Russia was the decisive factor, per the New Yorker's Jane Mayer, has been repeatedly debunked. But the notion that Trump's purported appeasement of Putin is a campaign kickback still has palpable sway over the Democratic Party and progressive media, as my colleague at Reason, Jesse Walker, put it. Quote, while Trump can't get over 2020, the leading Democrats are stuck in an endless loop of 2016. Now, after Trump won the presidency in 2016, Russian attempts to promote him on social media took center stage as the de facto explanation for Hillary Clinton's loss. The mainstream media reported breathlessly on the Internet Research Agency, a Kremlin-backed troll farm, that created fake accounts on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, YouTube, and elsewhere. It is absolutely true that Russia undertook this effort, which reached millions of Americans, according to the Washington Post. It is also true that the IRA purchased about $100,000 worth of political ads on Facebook. What's not true is that this effort was either comprehensive, persuasive, or decisive. The content was seen by just a fraction of overall social media users. On Twitter, roughly 80% of misleading election-related content was glimpsed by just 0.1% of users and wasn't specifically directed at swing voters in the states that Clinton ended up losing. Moreover, as I explained in my book, Tech Panic, Why We Shouldn't Fear Facebook and the Future, Russia's influence efforts were marginal compared to the efforts undertaken by the actual Trump and Clinton campaigns. The IRA spent $100,000 on ads. The campaign spent $80 million. Each time a Facebook user stumbled across some content designed to persuade him to vote for Trump, it was overwhelmingly likely that the originator of said content was a real, sincere Trump fan not a Russian troll. And in any case, the kinds of voters that swung the election to Trump, older working class white voters in Michigan and Pennsylvania, not exactly the most online demographic. On the contrary, they disproportionately received their news from traditional technologies like talk radio and television. Perhaps that's why so many in the mainstream media fell in love with the idea that Russian social media malfeasance was the real culprit behind Trump's win. It helped them to deflect from the fact that their own obsessive coverage of his every word was worth $2 billion in free media for the Trump campaign. So when Pelosi continues to say that Trump's behavior is best explained by some secret Russian connection, she is clinging to a theory that doesn't hold much water. It's always possible, of course, that subsequent reporting will reveal that Putin is in fact either blackmailing Trump or paying him off or something of that nature. But for the time being, the sort of speculation both Pelosi and Saki are engaging in is wildly speculative and totally contrary to Bob Mueller's report. Note, however, that no mainstream fact-checking organization or misinformation watchdog group is springing into action to correct their claims. Liberal news outlets reported on that interview. The Huffington Post actually cheered Pelosi for putting Trump on blast without calling them into question whatsoever. It's very telling what gets counted as misinformation these days and what doesn't. Pelosi was, until very recently, the third most powerful Democrat in Washington, D.C. Yet her brand of conspiracy theorizing, because that's what it is, received very little pushback. Saki certainly do, didn't do anything to push back whatsoever. So it was a really um, interesting interview where repeatedly she says they have something on Like, you can just breathlessly make this accusation and face no pushback whatsoever, even though they've investigated it for like eight years now. And 
And, and you don't need any special reason to explain why Trump says these things. He has some admiration for Putin. I think he would like to be able to silence people coming after him the way Putin does. And then Republicans more generally have a different attitude um, about the Russia-Ukraine conflict than President Biden and, and some Democrats. It's, it actually is a policy dispute. You can disagree with them. You can say that's wrong. But they have to imagine that it's something sinister because that's the only way Trump would ever – Putin must – must have sway over him, must, must have bought him, or, is, or Trump is paying him back for having made him president. I claim that Hillary Clinton and so many other Democrats repeated ad nauseum, even though it's been debunked over and over again. I was listening to Policy of America this morning, uh, where Mehdi Hassan was being interviewed, and they have an interlude where they uh, talk about uh, Trump and, and Putin and uh, an answer that he gave on the uh, Lower Ingram Town Hall. And, you know, Mehdi's pretty careful and, you know, doesn't tend toward those same kind of exaggerations like a lot of the kind of Russiagate-y uh, liberal press, and even described himself as, like, not a big Russiagator in the context of that uh, interview. But he said he did always find it to be curious that uh, Donald Trump would even make a criticism of Kim Jong-un, but never made a criticism of Putin. And, like, what is that about? And I'm like, even, even, even he couldn't resist making a statement like that. It's like, to me, the evidence is, are you saying that also that what, but for the one criticism that he made of Kim Jong-un's appearance or whatever it was, right. you would also argue that he's in league with North Korea? I mean, at what point do you start to see that your own rationalization of what the evidence is that suggests that, uh, that Trump has an actual relationship uh, with Vladimir Putin would extend so broadly as to be absurd? I mean, what, what? Are you interrogating the evidence that you're bringing forward here? Why would you even diminish yourself by making uh, an argument like that? You are doing a Russia. You are fully in the in the swings and the throes of Russiagate-ness if you are going to raise, using that as evidence. He's never, he's never insulted this other world leader uh, as a basis for thinking that there's some kind of um, scheme afoot. Yeah. It's just a totally permissible kind of conspiracy that flourishes even though yeah yeah and you know there are aspects of it. yes Russia did try to interfere they did have bots on social media the effect of that has yeah, been wildly exaggerated that's not the claim right. and the, the, claim and the reverse so could be said true that. of Joe Biden it seems like his family members try to trade on his name that's not the same thing right. as there being an actual exactly. play to play pay to play scheme that Joe Biden participated in and was remunerated by exactly but yeah. you can speculate wildly about this on uh, on a friendly progressive cable news and receive n no pushback during the interview and then i was looking is there's no, no one's leaping into action to say actually this is a really unproven accusation yeah. that has been looked at over and over again by journalists and by a special they investigator tried. and they didn't come up they right they really wanted to find something they didn't find anything but no one does that work in this case yeah all right well stick around we've got more rising for you coming up next Tensions over a planned Israeli ground invasion of Rafah in southern Gaza are coming to a head as the U.K. is beginning to consider suspending arms exports to Israel if the mass offensive goes forward. Multiple world governments have expressed their trepidation at continuing to fund Israel as a result of the ongoing humanitarian nightmare occurring in the country. Multiple Israeli airstrikes in Rafah have killed dozens of Palestinians in crucial infrastructure, including hospitals. Uh, have been uh, destroyed. Privately, many in the British government believe Israel is intent on launching a ground invasion of Rafah. International consequences be damned. 
The Rafa question comes as new reporting from CNN indicates Israeli forces fired on a food convoy in Gaza in order to block it from entering Palestinian territory. From the outlet, correspondence between the UN and the Israeli military shows the convoy's route was agreed upon by both parties prior to the strike. According to an international an internal incident report compiled by UNRWA, the truck was one of 10 in a convoy sitting stationary at an IDF holding point when it was fired upon. No one in the convoy was hurt, but much of its contents, mainly wheat, flour, desperately needed to bake bread, were destroyed. Meanwhile, an Israeli group submitted a report to the UN detailing Hamas's use of mass rape as a weapon of war during the October 7th terrorist attacks. Now, the report identifies four main points where Hamas used rape as an intentional tactic on October 7th and beyond. The Supernova Musical Festival near Raim in Gaza border communities in military bases infiltrated by Hamas and in ongoing abuse of hostages within the Strip itself. Notably, the report cites many, if not all, of the same sources referenced in a since largely discredited New York Times report, including Sapper, who is, whose claim of seeing women beheaded was not corroborated by any physical evidence. They often also reference the Zaka sources that we discussed at length with Max Blumenthal on the show before. Meanwhile, earlier this week, UN experts found credible reports of sexual assault and executions by Israeli soldiers of Palestinians. Per reporting in The Hill, a group of U.N. human rights experts denounced the Israeli military on Monday for said allegations, which constitute, quote, egregious human rights violations. Specifically, they report deliberate targeting and extrajudicial killing of Palestinian women and children, including those holding white flags or those who were fleeing. The report also condemned the arbitrary detention of hundreds of women and children lacking medical supplies and food, suffering in, quote, inhuman and degrading treatment. Photographs of women in degrading contexts have been posted to the Internet by Israeli soldiers themselves, as have multiple pictures of IDF soldiers posing with bras and undergarments of Palestinian women after raiding their homes. At least two Palestinian women de detainees were reportedly raped, while others were reportedly threatened with rape, according again to The Hill. Violence continues to flare over the events on October 7th. The Times of Israel reports an Israeli man was killed and 11 others were wounded in a shooting by three Palestinian gunmen near a checkpoint between Jerusalem and a West Bank settlement city. According to police, the trio opened fire with automatic weapons at Israelis waiting in traffic while heading toward Jerusalem on the Route 1 highway. Yeah. Uh, there's a lot there. So we have seen periodically every couple of weeks or so. Um, there are often these new reports, or they're packaged as new reports of evidence corroborating the October 7th uh, uh, sexual assault being widespread and pervasive on October 7th. In fact, the New York Times story that uh, came out around, I believe, Christmas time was one of those stories. It was a rearticulation of the kinds of events that people have been speaking about since October 7th, but did not in themselves report anything new. But the way that the New York Times article was framed was taken up as kind of proof positive that sexual assault rape not only happened, but happened in a pervasive and systemic way. Now, as we've talked about on the show at length, and Max Blumenthal and others at Gray Zone and the Electric Infatata have done a lot of good reporting on, the sourcing has crumbled around the October 7th story. And most recently, one of the uh, one of the authors of that story was at a conference, and he was even playing down the kind of evidentiary value of that story. He said something like, uh, I thought my goal was to give voice to what people were saying, not for the words that I was writing to be proof of anything, which is a pretty 
a pretty substantial walk back given how forcefully people were using that story as evidence um, that very specific rapes had occurred. And now, ironically, we're seeing a real shift and a kind of a lack of an interest from the media in this shift as we have uh, Palestinian women coming forward uh, and giving their testimony about what they've been experiencing in custody, uh, in, in Israeli custody. Uh, and the fact that so much of this is corroborated by evidence of photographs that Israeli soldiers themselves have been posting to social media, seeming to brag about rifling through the drawers of women, throw, uh, holding up uh, undergarments um, and the like, it, it's, it's not a, it's, it's, it's the optics of this are, are pretty, are pretty bad. I mean, look, it sounds like some really horrific stuff that ought to be investigated, and I have no doubt that atrocities are being committed um, on both sides of this conflict. Some of the things you're describing me, to me there do sound um, in keeping with the evidence is too strong a word, the suggestion of mistreatment or possible sexual mistreatment that, for instance, is in the, um, the October 7th footage, which I have viewed, which shows many of the, um, some of the bodies, you got to carefully contextualize this stuff. Some of the bodies found, including female bodies, uh, with their hands zip-tied, with articles of clothing missing. Yes, that could just be because that's what happened. They were killed, um, and it, you know, it shouldn't, we don't need to sensationalize or over-dramatize. I mean, people blown apart by attacks by a terrorist group. Um, I do think and that the New York Times story um, did get a little ahead of its skis in over-promising with the words you used. Uh, pervasive, or that it was uh, deliberate, or it was so—it was happening in every instance. Um, and I think the reporting that they used to demonstrate that, uh, you're right, that it has been called in question somewhat. So I don't want to—I'm I'm not going to overstate the case myself um, either way. I think it's—again, I um, the, the state of some of the bot—and and again, it, does, it doesn't matter. They were killed. They were, we don't need to make it sound more Agreed. horrible than it is. Um, so people ought to be more careful. Uh, I think it was going too far to say that we found evidence, compelling and substantial evidence, that it was um, that, that it was severe or total or you know part a, a main thrust of the attack itself. An intention, like a part of a deliberate well, plan for the warfare to include widespread sexual assault as part of the attack. Yeah, I mean, the, I mean that was the claim that was very specifically. Yeah, the, offered up uh, by Israel in the wake of October 7th. They came in, they shot people at a music festival in their homes, blew people up, beheaded some people posthumously. Um, people were found zip-tied in various states of undress. It's all awful, and I have no doubt that when we know that innocent people are dying now, the Palestinians, in the, during the Israeli response, and it would be truly wonderful to bring an end to this Horrific, horrific violence and unnecessary, unnecessary loss of life. Yeah, and to go back to this, the story that's actually you know before us right now, there was uh, you know the this is a UN report now. I mean, the UN has gone in and done an investigation. By the way, the UN wanted to investigate the October seventh sexual uh, assault claims and rape claims, but Israel blocked them from doing so. So now the UN, with all of its resources, have gone in. Did, did you have pushback for that? No. The UN, with all its resources, have gone in and said, we have Palestinian women who are named and on the record talking about their experiences in captivity. Um, that, and that is obviously more concrete firsthand testimony, the likes of which we're still struggling to get out of Israel. Well, and I mean, the, the argument is that everybody who was raped who... Was, is killed. 
it, right, because they did kill a lot of people, and we're hearing from so what, what people we're, who claim to witness rapes Right, occurring. so we, we can go back through all of that as well, but remember one of the main witnesses who says that he saw a number of events had also been kind of uh, putting himself in social media videos, I don't remember which app, it was TikTok or Instagram or whatever, laughing and joking as he, filming himself and his friend down in the dirt while he says he claims he saw a Israeli woman being buoyed from man to man in a mass game, gang rape. His story also changed initially after October 7th when he was first interviewed. He did not mention the rape. It was only until subsequent interviews, I think weeks later, that he started to change his story. All of those things are what have undermined that initial reporting. So that's not to say, obviously, that something hasn't happened. Remember, we also reported that Haaretz um, and the, sorry, the press reported that the Israeli police put out an open call saying, please, if you have evidence, come forward. If you are sexually assaulted, we're having trouble investigating these claims because we don't have any witnesses and we don't have any evidence. That, that is the problem here. So there have been a lot of people who are very interested, and I think rightly so, because the seriousness of those claims and being able to track them down and um, uh, trying right. to, some way to find but some justice here. the difficulty witnesses is because they killed all these people. Right. If, sure, or it didn't happen, right? Those are the options. It could not have happened. And there's a presumption that it did, and given the amount of... Um, because they did wait, kill them. ...horror that's been meted that's out on the people question. of Palestine as a consequence of those allegations. Because as I've said in many radar and many times on this show, if it's just about, not just, I don't obviously mean just, but if the issue is who has killed people and what is justified for killing people, then what we have on our hands is that Israel has killed 30,000 people, 75% are women or children. And that that is, even if you think that they deserved some kind of retribution or that constitutes, no, wait about, a minute, let me finish the sentence, or if that constitutes self-defense, very few people at this point believe that killing 30,000 people, 75% of which are women and children, a kill rate that is, um, uh, uh, the only kill rate in the last, uh, in recent history, in any global conflict that approaches what we've seen over the last four months in Gaza is the Rwandan genocide. So very people think that that's justified. So what do you do to make it seem more justified is you talk about the barbarity of the people involved and the inhumanity of the people involved and say they're not just killing people, they're raping people, they're beheading people, they're doing all these other kinds of things. And that's why I think there's a lot more attention paid to the allegations of that with respect to Hamas when the actual reporting of women who are sitting there saying, I have been sexually abused in Israeli custody are getting no coverage whatsoever by the same media that breathlessly reported the first claims. Well, the, no one, nobody needs to embellish anything. The actions of Hamas are terrible enough, and I don't. It, it shouldn't be about retribution. It should be about eliminating a terrorist organization without or taking every precaution possible. And I'm not satisfied that every precaution is being taken to safeguard innocent life, although it is a difficult task given how embedded in the civilian population the terrorist organization is, and the best thing would be for them to surrender and go into exile so this violence could end. All right, stick around. We have more Rising Q right after this. As the war in Ukraine continues to rage, the country is mulling another desperate step to increase its conscription pool and bolster its forces, lowering the enlistment age from 27 to 25. Now, the AP reports that while the proposal is highly unpopular, the average Ukrainian serviceman is in their 40s and has been injured already on a number of occasions, though due to 
desertments and recruitments and enlistments, they are unable to take the necessary time to recover. The new enlistment age would be in addition to draft legislation that would allow the Ukrainian government to freeze the bank accounts and restrict the travel of those who fail to respond to conscription orders. Meanwhile, back at home, members of Congress are publicly preparing for a potential government shutdown, with much of the blame falling on a potential foreign aid deal for, among other things, Ukraine. For CBS News, House Financial Services Chairman Patrick McHenry says there's a 50-50 chance of a government shutdown in early March, and it's House Speaker Mike Johnson's fear of being ousted that will determine the outcome. And at the same time, McHenry says the House is heading to a procedural nuclear war over funding for Ukraine. McHenry added that a sizable majority of House Republicans and Democrats support the Senate-passed national security bill that includes military aid to Ukraine, Israel and Taiwan. But the current bloc is Johnson. The disarray in the House has caused Democrats and Republicans to look at alternative ways of getting legislation and votes through. Per The Wall Street Journal, plans to use rare parliamentary procedures are in the early stages and might never come into play. Democrats' preference is for Johnson to allow a vote on the Senate's $95 billion bill to help U.S. allies in Ukraine, Israel, and Taiwan replenish depleted U.S. weapons stocks, but a bipartisan majority might be able to force a Ukraine funding bill through. Hmm. Yes, yeah, so this is an issue that really divides um, the Republican caucus to some degree now, although I think there are, there are more and more members who are listening to conservative voters and conservative party members who are deeply skeptical of continuing this funding effort, who perhaps have listened to um, actually military assessments done by the U.S. government, by our military experts, by military experts in Ukraine that are not Zelensky, that think um, we Ukraine is already is spent, uh, has performed as well as it possibly could in this war. It did experience some early successes against Russia that were that were unexpected. But Russia has um, occupied these regions of the country. They uh, conquered another city recently. Um, if anything, the momentum is shifting more in favor of Russia. Doesn't seem like. Um, more mass conscriptions are going to solve that issue. Um, so many of their of their army uh, is people who have previously been injured, who have to be demoralized, who've been at this for so long. So what is more money, more weapons really going to get us? And are we just, you know, dropping weapons into an unstable region of the world that will eventually end up in the hands of uh, not of, of Ukrainian of dissident groups, of Russia itself, of terrorist groups. You know, we've had this experience in the Middle East over and over again, where uh, ISIS took up arms that were used to battle um, Al Qaeda and other groups. So I'm, I, I think there's a lot of reasons to to wonder whether this course of action is still good. And yet, at the same time, Democratic uh, officials and leaders like President Joe Biden will say that Republicans have blood on their hands, actually coming close to explicitly blaming them for, like, Navalny's death, Russia's ability to, uh, Putin's ability to literally kill off his political opposition because um, Republicans are not enthusiastic enough about sending more American taxpayer dollars to, to Ukraine. So back on the domestic front, this seems like a big deja vu. It is... It is another situation where you have a Republican House Speaker who is confronting the reality that the majority of both caucuses, frankly, wants to send foreign aid to all of these places, Taiwan, Ukraine, and Israel. But the small number of people that were able to force the vote, uh, the House Freedom Caucus, 
were ultimately put in a position where they forced McCarthy out largely because he did the thing, whether or not you agree substantially with the underlying politics of it, which I don't, but decided to put um, the country first, as it were, and not have a government shut, shut down over what th this exact same kind of question. Now, Johnson was supposed to be cut from a different cloth. The only reason Johnson's in this position now is because he was supposed to act differently than Kevin McCarthy. But remember, as soon as he was elected, there was some kind of soft peddling on whether or not he would do a bifurcated bill versus a joint bill, and what are we going to do about Ukraine and Israel? Because also, remember, even within Republican House uh, Freedom Caucus types, the attitude toward Ukraine and the attitude toward Israel is very, very different, and I would like to point out, deeply hypocritical. And so is is the, the question is, is uh, Johnson going to go down with the ship and say, well, ultimately, my job as speaker, I'm failed as a speaker if I have all these government shutdowns, and I'm failed as a, a, a Tea Party totem pole, a, a, an, an icon of the House um, Freedom Caucus, if I pass billions of dollars in foreign aid when I said I'm an isolationist, American first kind of guy. What do you think is going to happen? I think Republicans could very well <laughs> pick a new speaker. What's stopping them? They don't care. They, they don't, they're not embarrassed by the spectacle of it, nor should they be. Um, if the leader is not delivering what the actual voters want, then he, he should be replaced. And I mean, people think this, this turmoil on the Republican side is so bad for the party, but there's, there's no... There's no evidence that that's the case. I mean, if it's not hurting Donald Trump's reelection chances to have had um, a succession of leaders uh, of the Republican Party within the congressional delegation. So now, shut, is shutting down the government good? Certainly not. We don't want, even those of us who want to rein in government spending or cut aspects of the government, don't want to do it haphazardly and suddenly and then end up funding it anyway and then end up paying back pay to all the people who didn't work in that time period. It doesn't actually reduce the size of government or the impact of government any way whatsoever. It's a side effect of the, of the fact that our members of Congress are basically just talking heads and, and pundits and don't actually engage in any real legislating and don't think critically about what aspects of our government should be funded, maybe deserving more funding, and which should be reined in and are not in accordance with what the American people actually want. But, no one, and this is a, a bipartisan problem, is interested in actually tackling the hard job of running the country. Yeah, it's tough. I mean, in some ways, this exacerbates the immigration problems that uh, Republicans now have on their hand. Now that Democrats, who have no bottom, have no morals, have no litmus test, have been willing to embrace this right-wing draconian immigration plan, Republicans kind of got themselves into a dog-catches-car situation where they have to say, pretend that they don't like this very thing that they've been clamoring for for years, but more specifically since last fall when they said, hey, we're not doing any funding, uh, any foreign, foreign aid funding unless you give us this immigration plan. Yeah. Um, Democrats said, hold my beer, yeah. <laughs> gave them the package but of their dreams. But they shouldn't do the foreign aid funding anyway, so well, it's all no, to the I'm, good. But I'm getting there. <laughs> gave them the package of their dreams and are now not knowing what to do with it. Now they're mm -hmm. in a position where you're saying, okay, we just had this big stand, stand, uh, stand down over who's going to be, uh, who has the authority to control the southern border. The federal government obviously wins because that's constitutionally uh, provided for. And now we're saying we're going to not only going to vote down this uh, draconian right wing, everything you want in a bag of chips border policy that the Democrats have completely bent the knee on, mm -hmm. um, unethically in my view, but also we're going to say we're going to shut the whole government down to the extent that there is all of, all of the border patrol officers out there already. The fact that 
These people are already the the last bat, the last safeguard against being overrun by uh, terrorists mm -hmm. at our southern border. We're not going to write their checks either. Yeah. That's what Republicans are saying right I now. Know, does, does that actually get shut? You know, in in the shutdown, it's always like a partial shutdown. They don't. There are vast parts of the government that don't end up actually getting shut down. So I don't. I mean, that could be the case. I don't know. I don't know either. It's, but if I were an, if I were a Democrat, an unethical person who is yeah. pushing this border policy and seem to have no 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 limits and no floors. I would just certainly would be making that argument. If I were a Republican, I would just <laughs> cut the aspects of the government that we don't want and uh, including much of our foreign aid, which is deeply unpopular with the American people of all political ideological stripes. Oh, sorry, I did just check border Border patrol officers do go to work every day during a shutdown. They do go to work every day during a shutdown without a paycheck. Yeah, but they usually get back pay when they we eventually decide that we've had enough fun. This stunt is over. <laughs> you know, fund the government for an emergency continuation resolution declaration, etc. More rising right after this. President Joe Biden is heading to the West Coast for a dinner hosted by the Getty family, per Puck News. Administration officials hope to raise around $2 million for the Biden re-election campaign, a re-election campaign that is currently in some trouble. Weeks after special counsel Robert Hur released his report on President Biden and his mental fitness, a Quinnipiac University poll conducted earlier this month found that 67% of voters say the 81-year-old is too old to effectively serve another term. That polling data consistently shows that even majorities of Democrats have concerns with the president's age. Meanwhile, podcast host Charlemagne the God told ABC News that he's gotten pushback from the White House for being, quote, tough on Biden. He said he feels like you should be able to criticize whoever your elected official is. You can't keep saying there's a threat to democracy but not act like it. Charlemagne has been critical of Democrats and Biden in particular before, arguing the party has only paid lip service to solving black issues and pursuing the minority vote only during election cycles. Yeah, famously, Charlemagne the God is the person that Joe Biden was talking to when he said, you, quote, ain't black if you haven't already decided to vote for me in the 2020 election. Well, it looks like a lot more black people are shedding their skin, according to Joe Biden, since historic numbers of black people are now saying they will not, in fact, vote for Joe Biden, but they were choosing Donald Trump as an alternative. Yeah, it uh, is reminiscent of the White House also lashing out, as we learned a few days ago at The New York Times, I think because of Ezra Klein, who openly mused about what it would look like to replace Joe Biden at this point, given the concerns about his age. Um, you know, this is always funny when, and, and Barack Obama did this too there, his administration getting mad with the press for not praising his accomplishments enough. Then, of course, when Trump's in power, any Republicans, oh, the war on the media, it's so horrible how this. A sweeping condemnation of the media, and is this a threat to freedom and free speech and the and 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 you know our independent press that the president is so combative with the media? And then, but then, Democrats expect fawning praise at all turns, don't get it, and are just as mad about well, it. Maybe as that's the thing. It's not even Charlemagne the God. Just He's the enemy of the context. people. <laughs> he has a like a hip hop radio show. Yeah. Like it's mostly music and like culture oriented. That does have a large audience and so therefore politicians do tend to go on his show. Some to great success, like uh, Bernie Sanders did very well on his show. Some come out with a lot of viral moments that aren't so great for them, like Hillary Clinton's famous hot hot sauce in the bag moment, which also happened on Charlemagne what? the God show. I don't remember this. 
she said she carried hot sauce in her bag in a, in a comment that was perceived as pandering to black people. I actually do think she carries hot sauce in her bag, well, but it was what, a- Black people carry hot sauce in their bag? No, but we tend to think that uh, lots of food that some other people oh. like are bland, is bland I know if it and requires a, hot well, sauce. Well, because we learned about uh, cash gets carried in the bag because yeah, of Bonnie Willis. I've been so talking about that with some of my friends, too. Bag. There's some, there's, I wouldn't have to get into that. <laughs> anyway, um, yeah, so so the idea that you're going to get big mad about a, like, I don't mean this as disrespectful to Charlemagne the God or the reach of that mm -hmm. show either, but the idea that the White House is going to be fuming that a hip-hop radio host, a music show host, isn't sufficiently deferential to the Biden administration, and then to be getting mad because he's saying true things that are reflected in the polls, like the guy is the oldest president in the history of presidents, and the guy is showing signs of cognitive decline, and we're not very confident that he is going to be able to make it through this election season. If you want to address the concerns that are being raised on the Breakfast Club, you need to address those concerns. It's not a Breakfast yeah. Club problem. It's an image problem. It's a problem that was easily anticipated. It's a problem that many people thought you were going to have anticipated when you hinted back in 2020 that you were going to be a one-term president before completely ratcheting back and reneging on that implied right. promise. So now you've got to deal with it. Biden could address these concerns by appearing on any of these shows, by doing interviews. He declined the Super Bowl interview. You've mentioned a number of times that he's done far like 80 interviews yep. during the course of his presidency, far fewer than Donald Trump or Barack Obama. Um, they're afraid, clearly, to put him, they're, they're afraid to put him on the camera for short amounts of time, let alone long amounts of time. But that's what he would need to do to dispel what is a popular notion among the entire electorate, including most Democrats, that he is not, he's not fit to campaign, uh, even though he's going to have to, because he's running for re-election. Yeah. Well, does another one bite the dust? Newly unveiled FOIA documents show that President Joe Biden's dog, Commander, bit U.S. service personnel in at least 24 incidents at the White House and other locations. The German Shepherd's teething troubles have apparently become a serious workplace issue for hundreds of staff. I'm obviously not laughing at people getting uh, bitten, but the, the pictures of Biden um, cuddling uh, Commander <laughs> on the screen when juxtaposed with the words I was reading caused me to laugh. Um, it, it apparently was compromising White House operations, which did in fact lead to Commander's removal from the White House to stay with external Biden family members. An unnamed assistant, a special agent in charge of the Secret Service Presidential Protective Division, wrote to their team in an email last June saying, quote, the recent dog bites have challenged us to adjust our operational tactics when Commander is present. Please give lots of room. But unarmed Secret Service had added that agents must be creative to ensure their own personal safety. According to CNN, though the lead agent did not reveal his identity, the Secret Service has confirmed the veracity of the reporting. Now, it seems to me, Robbie, that getting a dog, especially like a German Shepherd, is supposed to increase your safety vis-a-vis -vis the public. It seems from this reporting, these, these FOIA requests, the Secret Service is saying their ability to protect the president is actually being imperiled by the existence of this uh, bite-happy yeah, canine. It just seems like an unfortunate situation <laughs> that this is a kind of uh, dangerous dog. I mean, this is a breed that can... You know, do some scary. They can do some damage to you. Um, I knew someone growing up who got uh, attacked by a by a vicious dog. It was horrible, mm. absolutely horrible. So it's a serious issue. I mean, we don't know how you know how bad the biting kind of is that can range. Yeah, there's bites and there's bites yeah. for sure. 
but look, the, the thing that makes me But when really that dog little... bites you, it's a serious issue. You know, if a little, my little Yorkshire Terriers, I mean, they would never, ever, ever bite another human being. They love people to death, um, but uh, it wouldn't be an issue. Right, but the thing that makes me have not as much sympathy here is that he's not just some random person who's living a harried life with three children and a job and who has time to train this dog. The kids wanted a GD dog for Christmas and now we're stuck with the situation. No, this is the most powerful man in the world who has a dog whose behavior is so problematic that it's interfering with the ability of the Secret Service to protect the President of the United States of America. It's, it's honestly a national safety issue for someone to hire a trainer to come and fix this dog. Fix the dog. We, we're, we see Joe Biden with the dog walking as a puppy, which seems to suggest that these are problems that originated at home. They didn't adopt him from some shelter where he had baked in some some You're some problems. The Biden crime family trained him <laughs> to be a vicious, cold blooded killer. No, I'm saying that unlike Joe Biden, this isn't an this old is dog. Influence. Wait a minute. Unlike Joe Biden, this isn't an old dog that can't be taught new tricks. Yeah. And so to the extent that it has built in problems it, it should have been seen a mile away. And the, it's frankly a, an example of the negligence of this administration yeah. that they can't just call in, pay someone a full-time yearly salary to live with this freaking dog until it can behave. You can improve dog's behavior in these kinds of uh, behavioral training things. I had friends who had a dog that was a uh, little bit difficult to deal with and is now the sweetest thing um, after going through that kind yeah. of training. So you, you can do that. Yeah, there's no such thing as bad dogs. They say just bad owners. And that's not an indictment of the Bidens per se. He's a busy man. But if you're in this situation, it's incumbent on you to get your dog, your child, your whomever in your life that's causing troubles, the resources that they need, if you can afford it. And certainly the Bidens can afford, America can afford for the first dog to get a little remedial training. Mm. Well, we hope, we wish Commander well, and of course all the Secret Service <laughs> agents who were, who were bitten by the dog. More rising right after this. On the heels of a border crisis that continues to eat into the president's poll numbers, the White House is reportedly considering executive action to restrict migrants' ability to seek asylum at the U.S.-Mexico border. Per CNN, the move is reminiscent of a similar move made by President Trump during his presidency. Final decision has not been made yet, but would involve using an authority known as 212F, which provides the president with power to suspend the entry of or place restrictions on the entry of immigrants, quote, for such period as he shall deem necessary. Meanwhile, new reporting indicates that former President Donald Trump planned on involving the military in handling the border crisis and flying migrants out on military planes, per the Washington Post, as President Trump sought to use military planes and bases for deportation. The former senior administration official said, quote, he was obsessed with having the military involved. So clearly, no matter which party you pick, there's going to be an escalation here at the border. Yes, I was seeing um, a lot of uh, conservatives on social media saying, well, is, if Biden is saying he can take this action to improve the situation of the border now, this supports what we've been saying all along, which was that there is action he could take, has authority to take, without any new law that I, I guess that they, they would be in support of. Those are uh, some apples and oranges comparison. The legislation that Democrats want to pass, the right-wing, draconian, inhumane legislation that the Democrats want to pass, has millions, billions of dollars of funding for 
border relief. It has hiring of new administrative law judges to actually address the backlog that Republicans like to pretend they care about when they say things like, oh, we just want there to be more pathway, legal pathways to citizenship. Oh, we want the backlog not to be so long so immigrants don't get to just hang out and live in America for years while they're waiting for their cases to go through. If you actually care about those things, you would care about actually funding resources to process immigrants faster, including people who have legal asylum claims. So now to say, well, because he has narrow executive authority to basically deport anyone who doesn't seek asylum at a port of entry as opposed to elsewhere is ridiculous. I'm sorry, it's just ridiculous. Mm -hmm. And it's, 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 it's banking on the idea that people don't know what the heck anybody's talking about, which is true because largely the news media doesn't explain to people what's going on. For example, this issue about whether or not these are uh, illegal versus illegal asylees. To claim asylum under the law in the United States of America, you have to be in America. You have to cross over the border. So now this weird distinction is getting made between At people a port who... of entry. No, you have to be in American territory. So now this distinction is being made between people who cross at an actual border entry point versus cross elsewhere and make them make their way to a place where they can submit themselves for asylum. All asylees, you have to submit yourself for, for asylum. That's what they do. And so now I think a lot of people who frankly are crossing the border at non-checkpoints are trying to get to checkpoints anyway. And it's not clear to me what kind of difference this is going to make except for to make a loophole to say, if I get you before you get to a place where you can make your asylum claim, I'm allowed to deport you, even though under U.S. law, you have the right to claim asylum once you're on U.S. soil. Yeah. soil. Well, I am one of those people who supports making it easier for people to come here legally, not just for asylum reasons, but so they can come and work in the country and support our economy and participate in it and pay taxes like everyone else. And that way, these perception that they come here and are like disproportionately taking benefits or something that they're not paid into could be dispelled by letting people come in and have a legal status and work. We want them to work. Um, that's true of, of uh, especially true of high-skilled immigrants. We want to be able to bring more of them here to grow our economy and then not immediately you know, send them back to their home countries to take whatever skills and knowledge they've acquired here and you know, ship that overseas, like including like back to China makes absolutely no sense. Um, so it would be great if Congress could get on that and actually improve this process and then you wouldn't have this you know, flood of people in an unplanned and unscheduled way that compromises safety and security of, of not just people living in border communities, but of the people coming across in, in dangerous conditions, some, in some cases having to rely on disreputable or even gangs and traffickers to get here, which is no good for them and empowers very bad people who we don't want to, uh, to be involved in this process at all. So it would be great if Congress could get on that, but as usual, here we are. By the way, here's just some details in case people are actually curious what's in this bill that has been blocked by Republicans. Um, the bill raises the uh, standard for what the asylum seeker must establish in terms of making their asylum claim right off the bat. Um, they must establish clear and convincing proof that they have credible fear of prosecution if they stay in their country. The standard would change to a significant possibility, so basically ra raising what they have to um, argue they've been experiencing and wherever they came from. Um, it moves most new asylum cases to the Department of Homeland Security as opposed to by immigration judges. Um, it, 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 um, I mean, it has, uh, it ups the, it, it frankly ups the number of detention beds and rules that there are. As I mentioned before, it increases funding to the number of ALJs that are able to process these kinds of claims. It's been much discussed how much uh, there's this trigger that puts into effect where um, more actions can be taken once the number of immigrants over the border eclipses a certain amount, which 
it has been eclipsing over that amount for like a year now, uh, 4,000 per day over seven days. It can have this added authority to do enforcement and on and on and on. It is a over 100, it's a $118 billion bill. $118 billion that all goes to addressing the crisis at the border. And well, but it, yes, but it was attached to a bill that's been however many, much money, 60, 80, 100 billions for foreign aid. So. Yeah, which the people, yeah. which Republicans want. Which most Republicans want. No, and let's be really clear about this. It is attached to that bill because Republicans specifically said, not a year ago, not six months ago, but in December of 2023, we will not pass aid for Ukraine and these other countries unless it is attached to a immigration bill. Republicans beg the Democrats to do exactly what they've done and say, you want something from right. us? You want to give a little money to Ukraine? Political officials and leaders said that. You, no. They've read the, but they've read yes, the mood they're of all, they're all But their voters, their voters don't want this bill. Okay. They don't want funding for Ukraine. And so it dies because they are actually finally listening to the people. And do their, and do their voters want them to actually do something about the border? Or do they want them to posture about it for the benefit of Joe, uh, Donald Trump and the election season that's going to happen six months down the line. I mean, this voter, again, would like them to fix the immigration system, make it easier to come here legally, work, et cetera. You can't have it both ways. Either the Freedom Caucus is standing up for the interest of its constituents and saying, no, we don't want uh, foreign aid to go out the, uh, out the door. But at the same time, they're saying, I'm going to ignore the fact that you guys are saying that the priority for you is that there's a crisis at the border and there is money on the table yeah. to do something about it right now. But I'm not going to do that for political well, reasons. For some you reason, can't, you can't give them credit for one and not ding them for the other. Americans trust Trump more on the border than Biden. Yeah, maybe that's they shouldn't. Show. They most certainly should not. And that's not to say that you should trust Democrats either. But the clear... And that's polls not say people that's, say that's polls of right. everyone. Polls say people say. I'm going to say straight to you, the viewers, right now. The reality is that there is a policy that it goes far beyond what I think is ethically required and what is actually a good thing to do. But is realistically speaking, over a hundred billion dollars to solve the exact crisis that millions of Americans say that they want solved, and Republicans are obstructing it. Now I'm glad they are because I think it's a bad bill that okay, is a yeah, humanitarian disaster. But at the end of the day, you guys. You guys say you want something exactly like this. And it's the Republicans who are saying, no, we think that we prefer to have Trump be able to argue this issue and have better electoral chances than to actually do anything to process immigration claims sooner or to stop the um, number, sheer volume of people who are uh, coming across the border. You sound like you're arguing with me, but we both dislike many key aspects of the package and are glad to see it defeated. So. Good. <laughs> More rising right after this. Now, Israel's claim that Palestinian relief organization UNRWA was in bed with Hamas, justifying a cut to over half of UNRWA funding, is now falling apart because of a new American report that was unable to validate Israeli claims. That's right, an intelligence assessment by U.S. intelligence cannot verify that large numbers of U.N. workers have links to militant groups. Recall that Israel first alleged that just 12 UNRWA employees out of the 30,000 operating in the region were connected to Hamas before broadening their claim to include about 10 percent of all UNRWA workers after some pushback against the idea that Palestinian aid should be cut 
in the midst of humanitarian crisis due to the outlier behavior of a small minority. Now, last month, Secretary of State Antony Blinken called Israel's charges against UNRWA highly credible, and the UN summarily fired the employees that had not those that had not already died in Gaza. Now, the U.S. National Intelligence Council report assessed with low confidence that a small number, uh, the Wall Street Journal used the word a handful of UNRWA staffers participated in the October 7th attack. Now, notably, the Wall Street Journal reported that Israel hadn't shared the raw intelligence it's relying on. Note also that, as we reported over a week ago, the Israeli dossier that was apparently the basis of these claims and the basis for the quick firings, absent due process, of the UNRWA employees accused uh, were themselves cursory in nature. Now, Israel Defense Minister Yoav Gallant, who once famously referred to the siege on Gaza as a fight against, quote, human animals, continues to claim that 12 percent of UNRWA staffers have links to Hamas or to the Palestinian Islamic Jihad. UNRWA is set to lose $65 million in funding by the end of this month. As a result of these allegations, 18 states or institutions, including the United States, have cut funding. Meanwhile, an estimated 700,000 people are reportedly on the verge of starving to death in Gaza. Meanwhile, in an interview from earlier this month, former House Speaker Nancy Pelosi claimed that U.S. weapons are not currently going toward Israel's war in Gaza. Hmm. Oh, I thought we had a clip, We're not uh, playing that clip. Of, of that. All right. But so this was big news since obviously the basis of this huge cut in UNRWA funding, UNRWA being the sole basically humanitarian institution that's been responsible for not just relief efforts in the wake of the siege on Gaza, but also education, um, administering to the health needs of the population. Basically, the entire social safety net there has been seriously imperiled uh, and set to run out of money by the end of this month, in some cases having to reel back their operations, has all been based on this claim out of Israel that also happened to come down on the same day as the ICJ reporting, finding that it was plausibly committing a genocide, and it felt a little bit like retribution there. So, so all of this was based on this claim that is now unsubstantiated or un un unsubstantiated both so far by U.S. intelligence. Well, so help me understand. Is the the claim that 10 percent of the members, which would have been of UNRWA, which would have been, I think, hundreds of people or more, th is, that has not held up. So Wall Street Journal said, hand, so they have found that a small number, but couldn't that have been the initial 12? Yeah, that's the point. That when the, the story was first reported, again, hours after the ICJ judgment that Israel was plausibly committing a genocide, it was that there were four UNRWA, uh, UNRWA employees that were participants on October 7th. Once the United States immediately said, we're withdrawing funding. Now, the U.N. immediately fired those people, uh, up to nine people total, I think, um, that were included in a broader claim. Mm. Uh, the U.S. immediately said they were going to withdraw funding, along with, I believe, eight or nine other countries whose so total contributions amounted to a little over half of UNRWA's entire funding, immediately within the, the, the same day or a 24-hour period of time. Immediately after that, there was a great deal of pushback, saying there's 30,000 UNRWA operatives, uh, UNRWA employees in the region. They employ largely Palestinian workforce. The idea that you found four bad actors even if all, you believe all of that, and all of that's true, even if you found 12 bad actors, the idea that you're going to basically hamstring an important agency like UNRWA's ability to function at the same time that Palestinians are experiencing a humanitarian crisis is insane. And that's when we got the following Monday, I think you reported on this, that the Wall Street Journal put out a new report saying, well, Israel is now claiming that 
10% or more of UNRWA staffers have ties to Hamas. Mm. And those ties, even in themselves, if you, if you take that report at face value, it's saying things like, I have a family member, uh, I, my butcher is, you know, those kinds of things, mm. which I would argue them that is in and of itself a, a, an overreach of a claim. But even taking all of that on face value, now American intelligence has looked into this. And you can imagine what the incentives here are. America has acted really aggressively on this information, and it's frankly in the country's interest to find a there there that justifies it putting all of these Palestinian people in such a perilous position. And in fact, they were not able to substantiate this broader claim that Israel has been making, that there's a substantial um, relationship between UNRWA employees beyond this handful hmm. uh, and uh, Hamas or any other uh, uh, terrorist organization. I mean, you won't agree with this, but from my perspective, whether it's four or thousands of people, I wouldn't want American tax dollars put toward this purpose. And I think if you... I don't know, but I would like to see a poll of the American people, and do they think their money should be taken from them by a U.N. agency and given to people in Gaza? Now, I also think a lot of the American people in this poll would show opposition to funding Israel on the other side, so I'm not being inconsistent here. I think American tax dollars should be spent at home, not overseas either way. But um, that would be my position on it. Well, many folks are pretty concerned about the... Um 30,000 people dying. The imagery has just been pretty horrific. I mean, the number of children, babies wrapped up in the now iconic white uh, funeral sheaths um, that have been lining streets um, and sidewalks outside of hospitals, former residential <clears throat> areas in Palestine, the horrible imagery that came out while so many Americans were watching the Super Bowl of a um, young girl dangling with her legs having been ripped off from a wall because of the bombardment um, that was happening the night of the Super, Super Bowl in Rafa, and news that a ground invasion into Rafa, where a million Palestinians, almost half the population, have been corralled because they've been told to move and move and move into these spaces that are supposed to be safe, until now they're being told that this last remaining safe space, allegedly this huge refugee camp, which has been the subject of bombardments, over the last days in preparation of this Israeli ground campaign is going to also be subject to this Israeli ground campaign. At the same time, that an actual pin, I mean, we talk about Gaza being an open air prison. Now, an, a literal smaller pinned enclosure is being built on the other side of the Rafah gate in Egypt, which seems to be the intended final destination for this population, building what we call during World War II ghettos where Jewish people were housed before their mass extermination are being something that's very much very much an echo of that horrific uh, historical moment is being assembled um, as we speak in the desert in in Egypt and so there are a lot of people who are really looking to the United States to intervene here. Uh, Mehdi Hassan was on Pods of America this morning. He just wrote a piece for The Guardian. I think he has a new staff position there, where he pointed out that Reagan was able to pick up the phone and end the uh, Israeli siege on Lebanon in the 1980s with a phone call, and he was surprised by his power to do so. So why is it that Joe Biden, knowing that without his funding, this assault cannot continue, is so unwilling to intervene on behalf of the civilians of Gaza? 
at the same time that mm. he seems to want to have the protection of news stories that say that he is disgruntled, unhappy with Benjamin Netanyahu and his behavior. All at the same time, his representative at the UN is vetoing ceasefire agreements. Um, and all at the same time, he has chosen not only to withdraw our funding for the humanitarian support of these Gazans who are on the precipice of mass death and starvation, but to do so on the flimsiest of evidence. Mm. We will be back with more Rising right after this. Well, according to much of the online discourse from yesterday, Google's new Gemini AI has officially joined HAL 9000, Skynet, and that evil wheel from WALL-E in the pantheon of artificial intelligence run amok. Conservative commentators, but not just conservative commentators, were blasting Google over what they described as intentional anti-white bias in its new AI generative engine, Gemini. Several images of users asking the engine to create images of people from traditionally white nationalities and backgrounds, such as French or Swedish or English would produce images of black, brown, Asian, etc. people instead. But the reverse was not true. On the other hand, asking for images from minority cultures did not cause the AI to diversify those by adding in white people. Additionally, requests for images of specifically white people would be met with a warning from the AI not to push, quote, divisive rhetoric, while no such warning appeared again in the other direction. Now, Google appears to have agreed that this was a problem, issuing a statement to Fox Digital and some other places saying they were aware of these concerns and working to fix it. Gemini Experience's senior director of product management, Jack Krajic, addressed the responses from the AI that had led to this, these social media users expressing concern. Uh, he said, we are working to improve these kinds of depictions immediately. Gemini's AI image generation does generate a wide range of people, and that's generally a good thing because people around the world use it but it's missing the mark here. Later posts purported to show the process Gemini was taking to create the disconnect between a user prompt and the end result. One user who tried to get a picture of a leprechaun had tags like diverse, inclusive, black, South Asian, female, or non-binary added automatically on the back channel without any such user input. The AI would then use the modified prompt to create the images. As of now, Google has said it's pausing use of the Gemini AI engine as it retools the program. So I don't know if you checked uh, Twitter X yesterday, but it was filled with these examples of people um, uh, generating pictures. I played around with it a little bit. And I think, it, look, the issue for me is not that it, it creates implausible or historically not when you said, you know, make a. But on historically inaccurate leprechauns? But when you asked for, like, French king, it gave you female portrayals and portrayals of people from all over the world, whatever. But then when you did it on, like, in the other direction, when you asked it for, like, like Egyptian pharaoh or Arab sultan or something, it, it, it showed you entirely accurate and did not diversify it any further. What's the entirely accurate race of an Egyptian pharaoh? African. Seems like there were a lot of different races in ancient Egypt is kind of the point. It showed you historically representative. So a diverse array of people, as, the, as it did saying? in any context. I'm just, I'm confused as to what the qualm. What is confusing? All of it, to be honest. I, I, I'm trying to find the root of the concern. It seems like they're making a new technology. They've defaulted to every result being diverse. So that there's. No, they didn't. They did not default to every result being diverse. They defaulted to, um, to results that should, that, would be predominantly, by and large, 
Well, that's why I'm asking about the the Egyptian example, because ancient Egypt, situated geographically where it was, had rulers of all different complexions. Okay, what about Arab sultan or... Well, I don't know. You're the one that played with it. You brought up the ancient Egypt example. Or Aztec emperor or all of those Well, what about them? Tell me what happens. What you got is a stereotypical image of that thing in all of those, in most of those cases. Again, it was not every single time how you played well, you're with right. it. I, I understand it. it now, Robbie. This is a catastrophe, and I'm, I'm so glad. It's a catastrophe. It's just hilarious. What, what can I say? Okay, it's hilarious, and I hope that the good people at the AI generator get right on it. It sounds from that Fox News quote that we read that they are they're all over it, um, and uh, they're, they're going to fix this problem as soon as possible, because I think it really is really bad to not be accurately representing um, European leaders um, the way that, that they should be represented. I know that there's a, there's a whole historical trajectory of European leaders and um, historical figures not being accurately identified as white, and we wouldn't want the public to be broadly mis, um, mis, uh, de- deceived by that. And so I'm so glad that these AI generators are really getting quickly to the root of that problem. You asked if I had seen this on my timeline. No, I hadn't. Um, my timeline is largely occupied by pictures of um, limbless Palestinians. But also in the AI realm, there was this story about AI being used uh, to have um, pornographic images of a podcast host, uh, Bobby Altroff, that were trending either yesterday or the day before that apparently were completely AI generated. And it was all over the timeline. She, her name was trending. And so this is another one of those stories like the Taylor Swift story that we um, discussed, where there do seem to be some really significant privacy interests being violated here by software that can be used to put any famous person in any kind of um, unbecoming situation. And frankly, it, I'm, I only found out about 24 hours later that those images weren't real. And the implication that a lot of people are running around thinking that someone has put out a porn video or that they've seen them in this compromising situation doesn't to be a, a real significant issue. Hmm. Well, the law is going to have to be updated to reflect these technological changes. Obviously, I'm, you know, as I said when we talked about this earlier, I'm, I'm very cautious to create a new category of like impermissible content. I mean, if you're, you know, if you're misrepresenting your, yourself as someone else, I think that that's falling under like f- kind of fraud categories. But if it's clearly labeled parody, I mean, it's still it's not clearly labeled enough. parody. It's well, yeah, not. It's not. It's 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 labeled Bobby What's-Her-Face does a porn, and then it's all over the internet. And it's plausible. It looks it's, real to me. Oh, I didn't look. I don't know. Uh, so that's, that's, I think, a really significant issue. If you can't kind of fathom extending sim- sympathy to a random podcaster, who I don't even particularly care for, but she has rights and she's a human being, um, then imagine what if someone found a picture of your mother or your wife or your sister and, or your brother and made pornography with them. Um, that's, that is mm-hmm. what keeps happening. What if they... Okay, that's disgusting and gross, and we should shame whoever does that. I mean, what if somebody drew or painted that situation? It would be well, it would be a drawing. Speech. It well, would be a is, painting. Is this different? I mean, that's what we're going to find out. It's, it's maybe it is. I don't know that it is. I don't know that it's fundamentally different, but you don't anyway. think it's you don't know. I, that I don't know. I'm still I think that you know that it's it. fundamentally different. You know that it's fundamentally different. Your question isn't whether it's fundamentally different. It is obviously fundamentally different to take a medium that is known for having the imprimatur of truth. It is a um, oh, there's a word for this. Um, 
it, it creates a kind of a an imprint of reality. It is it is a, a photograph or like a plaster cast or like it's an imprint of something that really happened, as opposed to a obvious art object which is inherently representational obvious, and processed. Inherently representational. That seems highly subjective to me. That that art isn't a photograph. That art is more subject, like a drawn image is more subjective than a photographed image? No, it, that it's different than the AI-generated images, that those are not art. I, I'm not arguing that they're not art. I'm arguing whether drawn images have a different implication and a different con a subtext mm -hmm. than a photographed image or even a plaster cast, you know, something that is clearly an imprint of something that really existed in the world. And, compare, and saying that if you can take technology that looks like it's video, that looks like it's photograph, and doctor it in a way, because photographs are even, we are used to them being more mutable even than video. But to have the average person, not someone who has a Hollywood studio behind them to do special effects, but for the average person to use software on their computer that can make a realistic looking video of someone you loved in a sexual situation, doing a crime, a politician saying things that they never said mm -hmm. that can go viral bef long before there's any pushback. And we all know that lies go around the world twice before truth gets out the door. Well, again, maybe this falls under fraud. Maybe you can't, you couldn't, you know, claim, you couldn't write in a, or if you did, if you, you know, wrote a newspaper, you know, Joe Biden said, you know, I'll, I'll hail Osama bin Laden or something. And then, you know, he could sue me or because, if, so if it falls into that category, it might absolutely be speech that shouldn't be allowed. I'm just, I'm frankly excited about this technology, and I think it could be used for for good, um, creative purposes, for uh, not, not for um, making deep fake, realistic porn of people or smear or libeling people, but um, that it's an exciting technology that obviously some kinks need to be worked out, as we as we saw yesterday with Gemini, but. Um, but I'm just, I'm hesitant to, so I think the government could easily propose some sweeping new law that forbids the whole thing and um, it would be cutting off our nose to spite our face. Forbids what whole thing? AI technology. So the idea that it should, the use of AI should be limited in some ways makes you jump to, well, the only other, those are the two options. We have to ban AI altogether or else we have to allow people to make pornographic images of your sister. That seems can we like contemplate a, that the, that yeah, there might be some little but, okay. but when I'm, all I'm here is oh no I mean I, like I'm thinking of the the discourse around the chat uh, GBT stuff that was like oh no it, it 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 can tell you how to how to plan a school shooting or something well you gave it very specific prompts that fed it into that there, there was a lot of dramatic almost fainting couch think of the children kind of discourse going on with that and I'm hearing a lot of not this fainting too. count discourse couch discourse about AI. Like the kind we led this segment with. Oh my God, they're not, making the just, queens brown. I didn't say it was okay. You <laughs> try it out. It was it, it was really hard to get it to make an image of a white person at all. Oh my and it's, God, it's kind of funny. It's that be, through because of diversity DEI rationale oh. that they baked into this algorithm. Horrible. It no, I'm erased white people I'm entirely. With you. And if you don't think that's funny, this, I don't this know. This is to great say. replacement on a scale that I've never even seen before. And someone's got to get on. So look, it seems like they're all over it. They're going to fix this problem fa faster than they'll fix mass incarceration. 
So we can all rest assured that in a couple of weeks, this problem will not exist, and America will still have 25% of the world's prison population. I think it was okay to laugh at this the global and population. say it's kind of dumb as they concede, and they're going to work on it. <laughs> Amen but, to that, brother. The okay. priorities are aligned, and we will get to the bottom of this ASAP. All right, that does it for us today. Blessedly, tomorrow on Rising, Brianna and I will be taking a mental health day as we do every Friday, and uh, you will be instead treated to the commentary of Amber Duke and Jessica Burbank. Be sure to like, share, and subscribe so you never miss any content. And those of you who like to listen while on the go can find us wherever you listen to podcasts. Bye-bye. Take care.